I'd like for you to turn to the book of Colossians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 is our text. You've probably wondered or asked, and again you may not have, but you may have wondered what it's going to be like, what kind of bodies we're going to have when we get to heaven. What's it going to be like there? Will we know one another? What will our bodies be like? Well, we're going to talk about that tonight as we come to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that tells us what kind of bodies that we have uh, in the life that follows this one. If you're interested, I hope that you can find your way through all the activities of today to this place tonight, 7 o'clock. Masters grant, this is Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. You've heard it said, Take what he says with a grain of salt. Well, you need to add a little salt to what you say, you know, says, uh, so that you may know how to respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our fellow beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Underline that, that's the thought. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, that is, from Judaism, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. It surprised you when you heard on the um, network news the other day that Muammar Gaddafi is suffering from severe depression and has to sleep at night with the aid of a handful of sleeping pills. That shouldn't surprise you because depression exempts no one. This world is full of discouraged, depressed people. After the early service, somebody stopped me at the door this morning and said, I'm going to send that tape to a 15-year-old friend that I know who is experiencing severe depression. 
millions of people have adopted as their theme song, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child a Long Way from Home. Last year in America, 30,000 people killed themselves by overt acts of suicide. Another 100,000 attempted suicide unsuccessfully. And there are millions of people who are destroying themselves with less perceptible means, such as alcohol and drug abuse and uh, overwork and those psychological means by which we deprecate and diminish ourselves. It shouldn't surprise us, for even Christians get discouraged. Did you notice that this passage that talks about and has as its theme our encouragement and the challenge to encourage others was addressed to people who are perhaps the finest Christians who have ever lived. Sometimes it helps us to remember that even Christians get discouraged. In C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, he has Wormwood say to his nephew, one of the greatest weapons we have in the destruction of Christianity is discouragement. Said he, if we can get the Christian depressed and discouraged, we won half the battle. Ironically, it may be that Christians are the most susceptible to depression. Now, if that is true, that is true for several reasons. I just want to mention a couple of them. One is because we have learned how to swallow anger. To be human is to be a part of that which causes depression, and anger is certainly one of its main causes, or one of the main causes. Freud says that all depression is anger turned inward. We don't know how to handle what to do with our anger. Sometimes we feel guilty even when we get angry. A lady came into my office not long ago and sat down, and the first words that came out of her mouth were these. I know that as a Christian, I'm not supposed to ever get angry. I said, now wait a minute. Whoever told you that a Christian was to never get angry? As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us to get angry at the right time, in the right way, and for the, wrong, and for the right reasons. I mean, the Bible not only permits it, he, he in, the Bible encourages it. I said, you need to give yourself permission to get angry. And sometimes not knowing what to do with our anger, we turn it in on ourselves. I heard a person say, my aunt so-and-so is the best Christian I've ever met. She never gets angry about anything. Well, probably aunt so-and-so. Rather than never getting angry, had turned that, learned to turn that anger in on herself, and one day, if not already, aunt so-and-so is going to wake up with a bad case of the blues. Those people who, who study depression tell us that during, the world, during World War II, there was a sharp downturn of, of depression and suicide in Great Britain. It was a marked decrease and the conclusion was that that nation had learned somewhere else to direct its anger rather than in on itself. Yes, perhaps the people who wear the white hats are the most susceptible to depression. That's true for a second reason. 
It's true because the good people, God's people, are the people who feel the suffering and the hurt of others more intently. They feel the pain of others. They feel the agony that others experience and that hurt goes beyond feeling for others until it begins to turn in on itself. The only difference this morning in depression is the degree of it. In the severest kind of depression, there is impotency and helplessness. In the slightest, in the less extreme forms of discouragement and depression, it colors our life gray and it takes away the joy of living. Now I know that this sermon this morning is not going to be much help to those who experience severe depression and discouragement. As a matter of fact, severe depression is a mystery even to psychiatrists and psychologists and the causes and the treatments of severe depression are being revised constantly. But I also know that for most of us, discouragement and depression is progressive and it ravages our life and it snatches away the abundant life that Christ came to bring us and it debilitates us and destroys us. So that the question is, is there any way to cope with it? Is there help for it? And yes, there is. As a matter of fact, the text has some principles by which we can guide our lives and build our lives that will help us to, in this lifelong dis struggle against discouragement. I want to list several of them. The first is this. Locate yourself honestly before God and before others. I mean be honest about it. It shocked me when I read that Charles Spurgeon, perhaps the greatest expositor who has ever lived, would go into periods, he'd get so discouraged and depressed that he'd leave his pulpit in England and come to America and would stay for months just to get over his depression. And I was amazed when I read that Matthew Henry, whose commentary probably sits in your library if you have a commentary at all, came to a point in his life where he didn't want to go on any further and felt that everything he had done in the past, his ministry was, of, was vain, was of no value or use. But I was astonished the first time I discovered this passage and found this man, Paul, who is the greatest theologian that ever lived, who impacted the world like no other human being will impact it. And he comes to say that he got discouraged. Now, it's probable that even Paul will get discouraged. It is highly improbable that he would admit it, I thought. And he talks about this man who came to encourage him. It is not only a fact that he needed encouragement, but he, he located himself before God and before others in honesty to admit it. I read one time of a leader of another denomination who said, 
I get up some mornings and I don't even want to face the day. Does that sound like anybody you know? And he said, when I, when I come to that, those times in my life, he said, I just verbalize to God. I say to God, I don't feel like being a priest this morning. I don't feel like being a minister. I don't want to be the town pump that everybody comes where everybody comes and I have to be available to them and they pump me to find some help in me. I don't want to be a minister today. I think one of our problems is we think that there's something wrong with our Christian experience if we're not always on top. And one of the tricks that Satan has pulled on us is to get us to believe that a Christian always has to be gay and bright and sunny and happy and that he has to constantly never be in doubt of the nearness of God. It just isn't so. And you can be honest. You don't have to paste a plastic smile on your face and pretend that you're happy. There are times in your life when you just need to be honest and say to God, I just am at the lowest I have ever been. And the point I'm trying to make is that if you get to those times in your life where you are discouraged, you're in good company, there have been a lot of faith in God and never give up the struggle. Never give up the struggle. Someone said that real profanity is for a Christian to, to, to declare any situation hopeless. Can I say that again? You might not have been awake. Real profanity is for any Christian to declare any situation hopeless. Now there have been times when I have almost reached that point. When I've almost profaned, when I've almost blasphemed and said, this situation is hopeless. The struggle has to go on and on and on. Don't give up the struggle. Don't give in to your depression. One little affirmation of your faith is not going to be enough. The struggle has to go on. I read recently of a statement, of an article by, by Edith Paxson. She's dying of severe arthritis. She's been blind from birth. She made this statement in this little article. She said, I'm not going to willingly relinquish my life that contains my husband and my family, my home and my music. What she was saying is, I'm not going to go down without a struggle. And then she said, I learned from my childhood blindness what I call facial perception where every hair on my face vibrated when somebody came near. And she said, I have learned, I have now every nerve end vibrates at the, at the sense of that presence who stands outside yet near my harsh circumstances, molding them into coherence and beauty. Now this is what Edith Paxson said. I just kept up the struggle. I didn't give in to my depression. And in the struggle, I learned, I developed a sense of the nearness of God that sets every nerve in tingling. Now let me tell you something. You don't develop that awareness of God when everything's going great. As a matter of fact, 
your faith is probably never going to be any stronger than the faith you have when you don't want to have a faith. Now somebody was asking this morning a, a, a real probing question. A question is, that what about those, some, of, some of the people who kind of give up in the struggle and, 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 and they, they don't manifest this same uh, Christian witness that they've had before? My answer to that is that I know a lot of people who have the greatest evidence and witness of their faith is when they got so bad they wanted to quit, but they didn't. I mean, it's easy to, 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 to be happy when things are going well, but the greatest evidence of your faith in God might be that you just keep on when you don't want to keep on. There's this passage in the book of Deuteronomy. It says that the people stood afar while Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And when a person can go on and on and on and hang in there, when it gets so dark, it seems like God has abandoned his universe. Those are the people who have developed a faith that is persistent and stringent. Don't give up the struggle. Don't give in to your, to your depression. There's a third suggestion this text implies. It's a call to witness and to praise. And he said, be diligent in prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now sometimes to praise the Lord is just a matter of rehearsing what God has done in the past. I mean, that's all you've got just rehearsing what God has done in the past. But there's tremendous help and strength and encouragement when a person will just rehearse what God has done in the past. I was out doing a little exercise um, the other morning and I, I said in the first service, told them in there that I always like to remind folks that I, I still jog because they can't tell by looking at me. I, Somebody asked me the other day, said, you still jog? I said, yeah, I jog every day. And they said, you're kidding. You know, I, you can't be, you, you, you can't be still jog. But I was out jogging and I was, I was just thinking about the 42nd Psalm. Now in the 42nd Psalm, the psalmist admits that he's in trouble. He's got some problems. I mean, his, his life is, 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 is on, on a rough road. I mean, things are difficult for him. And so what does he do? He just begins to remember and rehearse what God has done in the past and then he makes this profound statement. He said, yet will I praise you. And what the psalmist was saying is this, I'm going to praise the Lord when I am discouraged just like I praised him when I wasn't. I'm not going to let what I see in my circumstances be the be the criterion for my praise, I'm going to praise him when I am depressed just like I did when I wasn't. And then he makes this kind of observation. He's saying in essence, I'm going to praise him for the same reasons I praised him when I wasn't depressed now that I am. Now let me show you something. The circumstances of your life are going to change. Life is going to have its ups and downs. Life's going to have its rough places. There are going to be difficult moments and days that you're going to have to live. The circumstances of your life are surely going to change, but God never is. 
And what God is about is a, God is a God of love and grace. And if when the circumstances were good, you had a reason to praise Him, surely you have a reason to praise Him now because He's still the same. Now, our, our voices may crack sometime when we try to do it. And our praise may be uh, accentuated more with question marks than exclamation points, but there's a tremendous power in praising God for what He's done. Out of the suffering of slavery came some of our greatest music. Listen to one of these old Negro spirituals. I get so happy praising my Jesus. I get so, can you see some old slave singing that song and has no reason to sing it except of Jesus? I get so happy praising my Jesus. I get so happy praising my Jesus. I get so happy praising my Jesus. I don't have time to die. Now you just fill in the blank. I don't have time to complain. I don't have time to cry. Whatever words you want to put there, let me tell you something. When you start praising Jesus, when you start praising God, if only for what He has done in the past, you're not going to have time to cry or complain or die. So it's a call to witness and to praise. Fourth, in order to deal with this discouragement that's a part of our lives, we must stay close to our significant others. Our significant others. Now, now you be honest with, you, with me. How many of you have ever heard of Aristarchus before or Justice, who was called Jesus? I, I, probably you never even knew there was another man in the Bible named Jesus other than Jesus of Nazareth. Who are these guys? They've never wrote a book. It's in, it's in print that we know about. They never started a church. Who were these men? They were the significant others in the life of the Apostle Paul. They were the people that he needed for his encouragement. I was walking down the hall the other day and I heard this voice. Gerald, I turned around and this guy was standing there. He said, come, I need to speak to you just a minute. And, and this guy, he, he really didn't know that he was an angel sent from God, but he was. Because he was there just when I needed him. He said, I, he said, I, I want to tell you that I, that I felt a need to come to you the other day and encourage you, and I didn't do it, and I'm sorry that I didn't. He said, I want to tell you today, I'm, I want to encourage you today. Now, now when, he, when he said that was when I needed it. My significant other. Now, a significant other is a person that you love or loves you, you trust or trust you. And in the Christian fellowship, they embody a tremendous power because the significant other is able to bring to reality what depression distorts. For when you are depressed or discouraged, you don't see things clearly, do you? You judge yourself harshly and you blow out of proportion your failures. 
And that's what the author of the book of Ecclesiastes was talking about when he talked about, he says, two are better than one because that significant other that God sends into your life helps you to get a good perspective, a proper perspective on things. He helps you to get some reality to the distortion. He helps you to see things clearly. And sometimes these significant others need to be somebody other than your family because they might not tell you the truth. They may be good, too good to you or they may be too bad <laughs> to you. But it's some Christian, as you're sensitive, some godly person that the Lord just sends into your life with some message. And, 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 and that's what happened to me the other morning. And right out here in the hall just a while ago, absolutely disconnected from what I'm doing here today, a guy said something to me and God said to me, that's your next sermon. The significant others are those people who bring into your life that, that perspective that God wants you to have and you need those folks. Now the tendency of depression is to withdraw, isn't it? I mean to retreat. When you get discouraged, you want to run somewhere and hide. You want to hide in your house or in some alcohol bottle or pill bottle. You want to run and escape and hide. And you want to keep these people at arm's length because you don't want to be vulnerable and honest. It's difficult to open up and, 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 and bear your heart to other people. But that significant other is the redeemer in that situation for you. Just like Christ is a redeemer for your sin. Two others and I'll brush them. And I'll, we'll, I'll, we'll get out of here. Third, fifth principle, I started to say third because, you know, three points in a poem and you get, but I'm, you know, it's a five-pointer or a six-pointer today. Fifth, be sure before you get discouraged that you have all the facts. In verse seven, he says, he's coming to bring you the facts. In verse eight, he says, that you may know. In verse 9 he says, he's coming to inform you on the whole situation. For you see, a lot of times our discouragement, our depression is the result of not having all the facts. Let me tell you something. Are you still with me? Some things are not what they seem to be. Perception is not always reality. There's a difference between perception and reality. How painfully I'm made aware of that all the time. I got on a street in Dallas the other day, Oklahoma City the other day. I just knew I was going the right way until I saw everybody else coming toward me. And, and I, I, you know, there is a way that seems right, the scripture says. I mean, I, I am so aware this morning that, that, that perception is not always reality. Why? Because perception is oftentimes based upon inadequate information and it relies on the senses which are so relative. Perception is not always reality. Second Kings chapter 6, there is this servant boy in the house of Elisha and he is surrounded by this army and he just knows that the end is near. You know what Elisha does? He doesn't, he, 
he doesn't rebuke him. He just says, Lord, he prays that, Lord, open the eyes of this servant that he might see. And he looked out the window. You know what he saw? He saw horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. He just needed to see all the facts. Now let me tell you something. When you look out the windows of your life, you're going to see the evidences of defeat. I mean, this is the end. But you may not have all the facts when you do that. There may be some things that are not seen. Don't get discouraged until you have all the facts. For perception is not always reality. I heard about the guy that went to see the hockey game. It was played with handicapped folks. Some of them were mildly retarded. I don't know how much you know about hockey, but in hockey, if you tie it at the end of regulation, you play one more quarter, and, and the end of that overtime quarter, the game's over, if you, if, whether you're tied then or not. And he said they went into overtime, the overtime quarter, and Team A was ahead of Team B, three to two. And he said six seconds before the end of the game, Team B made a desperation shot, tied the game. Buzzer went off and that was it. He said, I was kind of let down, really. He said, a tie is like, you know, kissing your sister. And he said, I was kind of discouraged. He said, this little guy skated by me, this little retarded guy skated by me and he had his, his hockey puck, his, his hockey stick in his hand held above his head in absolute triumph. He was on team A that was tied in the last six seconds. He went skating by with his hockey hockey stick held high saying, everybody won, we both won. Now, what seemed to be defeat to some who were there was really victory. It's a matter of how you see it, how you look at it. It's a matter of getting all the facts. Now, what is going on in your life this morning may be to you the absolute evidence of your demise, I mean your, de your defeat. But when you see that which is not seen, you may discover that it, what you see today as defeat is the greatest victory you'll ever have. Isn't that amazing? Only God can do that. Only the Christian faith can give that hope. One last thought, please. In our struggle against discouragement, we have to keep our commitment to God growing now Paul says to the people at Colossae, remember that you have a master. Oh my. You know what that means? It means that you have to come on a daily and continuous basis, continuous time, place in your life where you reaffirm and re-acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ and your commitment to Him. You have to do it. And I have found, I think that I have found that my discouragement and my depression is related to and in proportion with my walk with God. I think that I have found 
that when I get away from my daily walk with God, my prayer life with Him, my time with Him, when I get away from that on a daily, on a consistent basis, I think I have found this to be true, that I begin to sense those feelings of despair and discouragement. And when I am willing to come back and reaffirm and re uh, commit myself to Him and redevelop the means of grace which, which are your quiet time and your prayer time and your walk with God that beginning to, there, there begins to come back those feelings of, of, of encouragement and help. Vance Havner has a sermon called Resign or Resign. They're both spelled the same. It's just where you put the the, the emphasis. And he says, when you face discouragement, there are three things you can do. One is you can resign. I've got a feeling some of us, some of us here today would like to do that. Now, now listen, what I'm talking about is not just relevant to preachers. It is relevant to preachers. But there's a whole bunch of us here this morning who'd just like to quit, wouldn't we? You'll burn out, you're tired. You'd like to just drop out of ministry of life in general. I mean, you, you about had it. Isn't that right? And, and you, you, you got a, you got one of those, you, you got that feeling. Man, listen, this is more than I want to put up with. I'm just going to quit. And the walk I've had and the work I've done, I'm going to quit. That's all for me. You're burnt out and, and beat out and beat up. You can quit. Or you can resign yourself to the situation. I mean, like a stoic, you can grin your teeth, grit your teeth, and bear it. Or you can resign your commitment to God. You can resign. That is, you can renew the commitment you made before. Some of you have a Schofield Bible you carry around with you. Schofield said he never prayed in the presence of Dwight L. Moody, but what Dwight L. Moody prayed that he, Schofield, would have his commission renewed. Now that'll bless you. Guy prays for you and he prays that your commission will be renewed. He said, it got me to thinking, it got me to worrying. Am I ministering with an with a outdated commission? And he said, I was sitting one night listening to a guy preach on Naaman the leper. You know, the guy that had to go down to the Jordan and dunk seven times. He said, while I was sitting there listening to that preacher, I was thinking, man, that guy is boring. He's got nothing to say. I wonder if it's just me. And he said that my friend, my colleague next to me, punched me and whispered in my ear, I think that preacher needs to go down and get redunked in the Jordan himself. <laughs> needs another dunk in the Jordan. And he said, I... I, God just rammed that thought into my heart. He said, when I left that night, I knew my problem was that I needed a new dunk in the Jordan. I needed a new, I need to get my commission renewed. Is there anybody here this morning that doesn't need that? Is there anybody in this place that doesn't need that? That cannot say, I just need a new washing, a new fresh breath from God. I just need 
my commission renewed. I need a new walk with God. Is there anybody here who doesn't need that? Uh-uh, uh-uh. And when a person is willing to come and honestly locate himself before God and say to God, God, I'm in this place, I'm at this point in my life, and I'm just not doing it. I'm not winning it. I'm not getting it. But I'm going to come to believe that it's you haven't changed, and I want to get myself back into the place where you can bless me. And until it happens, I'm going to praise you yet. When you get there, friend, you've won a big, you've, you, you're there. You're there. When you get to that point, you're walking, you're treading where the saints have trod. And you're going to win in this battle. Let's pray together. Father, help us to know today the answer to the defeat to the despair and give us hope I pray Lord teach us in the thick darkness what you cannot teach us in the bright light and we'll keep on in the struggle counting on our confidence and our faith that we will yet one day be praising thee because we feel like it until then We'll praise you anyway. And Lord, I pray this morning for those of us that need a fresh touch. Move upon our hearts today. Move upon this service, upon this invitation, I ask that we'll be different and changed and helped because you've spoken. I pray it in the name of Jesus for his sake. Now let me say this. There are three invitations this morning that, that we need to consider. One is to give one's heart and life to Jesus Christ. The other is to come and place his life in the church, God leading you, because you know this is where you need to be. By baptism, by statement, by promise of letter. There may be, just need, there may be some who just need to come to say, I just need a fresh touch from God. Would you do it? Always stand to sing. Would you come?